His supporters won't even call him on the fact that he loves dictators. Loves dictators. Loves dictators. Loves dictators. Loves dictators. Loves dictators. Dictators. Dictatorial powers. And I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm representing every liberty-loving American out there in this country right now. Every American who likes the right to say what they want. Everybody who likes the freedom to go up and pick up a gun and go shoot. Well, let's construct this scenario and see if it has the slightest bit of believability. He was one of those civilized individuals who did not insist upon agreement with his political principles as a precondition for conversation or friendship. People around here don't care about DACA. They don't care about Me Too, I'm Black Too, or transgender bathrooms. Period. A trade war with China? Bring it on. Most people in western Pennsylvania support it. They've been blaming the Chinese for stealing their jobs for 40 years. Democrats used to fight for this stuff. So I think it should become apparent to anyone paying attention that the Republicans have become the enabler party. They are enabling Donald Trump to do anything he damn well pleases and are turning a blind eye to it. His supporters won't even call him on the fact that he loves dictators. He loves authoritarian figures. It almost seems as if he views himself as such, and they're following blindly. This is an American president who takes the word of dictators over his own intelligence community. The most recent example of this is his meeting with Kim Jong-un over in Vietnam. Now, Otto Warmbier, the American student that was imprisoned in North Korea for more than a year and died only days after being sent back to the United States with brain damage, President Trump came away with a strong conviction that the dictator doesn't deserve any blame. Now, here's a guy, Kim Jong-un, who knows everything about what's happening in North Korea. He knows exactly what the rest of the world thinks about him. And President Trump comes back from Vietnam and says, yeah, he felt badly about it. He felt very badly. He tells me that he didn't know about it, and I take him at his word. What? This isn't the first time that he's taken the word of an authoritarian figure over a U.S. citizen. And let's remember, Kim is one of the world's foremost human rights abusers. He's executed his own family members, runs a country that's been described as the world's biggest open prison camp. But we'll take him at his word for him. At least our president will. And this isn't the first time President Trump has taken the word of dictators over his own intelligence community. Remember last July, he told reporters in Helsinki that he believed Russian President Vladimir Putin when the Russian president said that the Kremlin did not interfere with the 2016 election, despite reports from the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement community saying otherwise. Back in October, President Trump explained that while it looked like Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had ordered the murder of U.S. resident Jamal Khashoggi, well, he had spoken with the MBS on the phone, and the guy totally denied any knowledge that that took place, which is good enough for the president. But what about the CIA? They concluded that the prince was definitely behind the whole thing. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just think. If this was any other president, how many investigations would the Republican majority have already held? 
they would have called for impeachment hearings already. They would have tried to jail. Well, in fact, his supporters are still saying lock her up when they talk about Hillary Clinton over emails. But maybe it's just me. Maybe I don't know the real definition of treason, but I know when something looks rotten and I know when something smells rotten. And this guy smells rotten. From the business dealings that he had going on throughout the entire campaign and even after the campaign, there's a reason why this president didn't want to turn over the family business to a blind trust. I think we can say without reservation that this president has tried to profit more out of his presidency than any other president in U.S. history. And if you think there's no way this guy is going to get reelected, you must be a Democrat because you're certainly not a Republican. Republicans love what this guy is doing. In fact, in the latest survey, 87 percent of Republican respondents approved of the president's job performance during his second year in office. Only 8% of Democratic respondents gave the president positive marks. And at this point, there are no fewer than 30 Democrats who are getting attention as potential nominees in 2020. Will they all survive until the primary? Of course not. But the question is, how much damage will they do to the party in the process? Democrats just can't seem to determine which direction to go. And already the progressives and the moderates in the party are fighting each other for control. President Trump can continue to talk about winning and the Republicans will dutifully respond to the applause lines. Even though the auto industry is pulling out of Youngstown, West Virginia hasn't seen any new coal mines and Pennsylvania certainly isn't getting steel job. And remember, it took months for Americans to figure out that the tax breaks didn't help the middle class. They went to the wealthy. Yet, incredibly enough, they're still buying what he's selling. Let's step back for a moment to those 30 potential contenders from the Democrats in 2020. What are they offering? What are their issues? The Green New Deal. It's not even getting traction among the Democrats. Believe me, we all care about the future of the environment. We all care about clean water and clean air and leaving our children behind something that they can live with. But that's not the number one priority. Even Democrats can't come together on this. The moderates over the progressives. The moderates are saying it's not affordable. We can't pay for it. It's not going to work. And meanwhile, the progressives keep pushing it forward. Are they wrong? No, but there's got to be a compromise among these people or the party is going down again. $15 minimum wage. This time around, even some moderate Democrats are saying, okay, we can't take the whole bite right now, but let's try and inch it ahead a little bit at a time. And these are the things that President Trump is using to shore up his base. Not that he needs to do this because the base is already behind him, but they don't want to pay $15 an hour. They're mostly business people and the clean air and the clean water they're mocking that and the Democrats don't have anything to come back with. How are they going to combat the socialist tag when they talk about Medicare for all or health care for all? We'd all like to see it because health care is still unaffordable for most Americans. But how are they going to win that debate? So the compromise doesn't have to be between the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats have to compromise with one another. They're going to have to find a middle ground for the progressives and the moderates to get together and push an agenda forward before 2020. If not, Donald Trump will be reelected. Pittsburgh Pirates are heading into the 2019 season with new names and supposedly some new ways to entice fans to come to PNC Park. My next guest played at Forbes Field, 
played at Three Rivers Stadium and has been a broadcaster for the Pirates at PNC Park. And he announced that 2019 will be his final season behind the microphone. He and his wife recently moved to Florida and he's ready to relax with the grandkids. We've talked over the years and it's apparent that Steve loves the Pirate fans. He loves the organization. In fact, he wrote a book called A Pirate for Life. Here's Steve Blast. Hello, how are you? I, I apologize. I, I was a little late turning the phone on, but this technology has got me uh, <laughs> on my heels a little bit. But it's good to hear your voice again. Uh, that's great, and it's good to have you on the program again. Uh, we've worked together in the past, and uh, I was telling the folks here, aside from your book, A Pirate for Life, that you're a tremendous fan of rock and roll, and we did some pirate fests together uh, where you were more knowledgeable than just about anybody else in the place on uh, rock and roll trivia. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm an, uh, an oldies fan. I what happened, uh, Mike, uh, after I got through playing, I was on the road quite a bit selling class rings. So I was on the radio here in the oldies uh, day in, day out. And, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. In fact, uh, I've got a guy now putting together a little compilation because my wife and I have turned 70 this year. We're going to have a 70s theme party, and I've got the top ten rock and roll uh, hits of each year of the 70s, each year of that decade, and we're going to play them during the party. I hope everybody else remembers the the, uh, the lyrics also because we're going to have some fun. Oh, great! And what was your number one song from the 70s? Well, uh, a, a lot of them. You know, the groups. Uh, you know, I I go back to uh, you know Jethro Tull, and 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 I go back to you know all the way back to Herb Alpert, Sergio Mendez. I mean, all all those groups, the uh, the Doobies and uh, the Turtles. Uh, I always said if if you had a, a six pack and a, and a cassette tape of the turtles, you were in good shape for a picnic. <laughs> that's great to think of uh, back in those days, and that's classic AM radio when the formats oh, yeah. weren't formats weren't as strict, and you could hear uh, Herb Alpert and Jethro Tull on the same station. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was fun. And you know what? You knew all the words. I I listen to music now, and every once in a while I catch something that uh, that appeals to me. But half the time I can't hear what they're saying. <laughs> That's great stuff. And I remember you talking about years ago and, and getting into your book, A Pirate for Life, uh, when you first came up with the with the pirates. And uh, it was your dad in Connecticut who used to sit in a car and listen to the radio to the pirate games? Absolutely. We could get it in and around WBZ from Boston. And we were in such a small town of, of about 700 people that when I was going to pitch, my dad would take a six-pack and just get in the car and just drive around our little town of Falls Village, Connecticut, until came in strong. He would just shut the car down right there, and he would enjoy the game, have the six-pack, and at the end of each season, he would send Bob Prince an invoice for two car batteries and 16 cases of beer. And, and Prince always loved that. The gunner loved that story. That's <laughs> great. Uh, great stories. And was your dad your biggest fan? Yeah, along with Mom and, and um some of the folks back in Connecticut, and every year I'd come back, Mike, from from a, a baseball season back to that small town in Connecticut where we didn't have big league baseball, obviously. They want to hear all the stories. You know, what's it like on the road? What's it like playing with Clemente? What's it like this and what's it like that? So it was it was great. We had a, a lot of fans back in, in Connecticut. And, and, in fact, that little town, we produced three major leaguers out of that little high school. So a lot of baseball interest. And the ironic thing was that my wife is from a big baseball family. Her brother pitched for the Pirates, John Lamb. And so we thought when we got married, we'd be raising bonus babies. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we could sit comfortably and, and watch our sons play in the big leagues. It didn't work out that way, but uh, 
we're proud of them nonetheless. But the, the bonus babies didn't come through like we thought they were going <laughs> to. Uh, but the idea that uh, you've been a pirate for life, uh, that you came up with the ball club, uh, you spent the time, you were an all-star with the Pirates, a World Series champion. Uh, everybody can remember that 71 series. Uh, and and you lived on as a broadcaster, came back years later as a color commentator, and uh, just uh, telling the stories and, and giving the color to the game that uh, many announcers today just can't do. The idea that you've stayed with the team for so long, that's special in today's world, especially in pro baseball. Absolutely, Mike. I, I am so proud of that because uh, it doesn't happen much anymore, primarily because of free agency. Guys can move around a lot. But, you know, Bill, uh, guys like Bill Mazeroski and Willie Stargell, uh, some of the other players around, it, that, it feels so good to have been with one organization for this long. And, uh, you know, I, I think back to 1960 when I graduated from high school. And my dream was to play professional baseball, and the Pirates gave me a chance to live that dream, and, and darn if I'm still not living it. But because of that, I, you know, they have my loyalty forever. I'll, I'll never quit on them, because when somebody gives you that opportunity to live your dream, I mean, you you take that with you for forever, because how many people get to, a chance to live that dream that they have when they're eight years old? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm a pirate for life, and, and uh, I wanted to write this book, Mike, because I had a lot of recall, and I, I wanted to write it before I didn't have a lot of yeah. recall. So the stories are there, and, and of course, the, the hook of the book, if you will, is uh, going from 19 wins down to nothing and then, and then getting out. So I don't think that anybody has taken that descent that rapidly in pro sports from the top of the heap down to the depths. And I thought that was a story of interest for people around Pittsburgh and maybe people that are baseball fans, because I still don't know why that happened. Mm-hmm. But I thought in the book I could take people through what it was like to experience that, which was not much fun. So that's the first chapter of the book. And then it gets fun after that. But, yeah. uh, you know, that, that, that would be the primary interest. And I think that that might be what separates it from other sports books. And, Steve, that's interesting because to a lot of people, they wouldn't want to relive uh, those that those down years, those frustrating years for you. You were World Series champion a couple times, and uh, and then all of a sudden the bottom falls off from under it. Uh, to relive it and to be asked in these conversations, not only since you wrote the book, but over and over again about that, does it ever grate on you? I mean, you have to relive it every time somebody mentions it. Yeah, I, I do, but I understand why why there's an interest in it. I mean, my goodness, there was an interest when I was pitching well and pitching in the World Series. So uh, for me not to have time uh, to uh, to respond to people who have an interest in that wouldn't be fair. Uh, you know, if you got time for people when you're on the top, you should have time for people when you're on the bottom, you know, because everybody's trying to do a job and, and there's an interest in that story. So that's why I've had a lot of patience with it. It, it certainly is not my favorite subject, but I understand the interest. And uh, writing that particular chapter uh, was to some degree therapeutic for Karen, uh, my wife, and I, because when it was happening, I kind of internalized everything, and, and we probably didn't have the communication through my fault that we should have had, which would have helped it, you know, helped us go through it in the family sense and, and all that. So revisiting it was painful to some degree, but, but it was a little bit of a plus in, in that particular degree where we've discussed it more and, and uh, you know, gone over, yeah, what, what should we have done better? What could we have done better? Uh, but we got through it with our family intact. And uh, so, um, you know, it, it, it's okay. The, the passage of time certainly has, has taken away a lot of this 
the uh, the discomfort. We're talking with uh, Pittsburgh Pirate uh, Steve Blass and as well. It's like a Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Once a Pirate, always a Pirate. Steve Blass, right. a Pirate for life. Do you remember the first couple of innings when you lost the control and wondering what the hell's going on here? Well, you know, I I did, but it was kind of a gradual thing because I, I'd won 19 games and I went through a good spring training, and, and uh, at the point where it started to slide away was. Oh, right around May of '73, and and uh, I was still three and three. It pitched a complete game, and it just was kind of like a slump. And I, you know, we've all been in slumps before, and you work your way out of a slump. And I, I'd been through that, and I just thought it would come back and come back, and it just never did. It just got deeper and deeper, and I tried everything, uh, but it just, it just never got better. And it wasn't one particular incident. Uh, in other words, I didn't hit a batter in the head or. Uh, because of Clemente's death, I don't think that was a, that was a factor because we were friends, but we both had better friends and, and more intense friends. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there were a lot of um, theories presented, but it was just a gradual slump that I ne- became a whirlpool and uh, I never got out of it. Uh, and I tried everything. I, I went through ridiculous exercises and you know psychiatry and transcendental meditation and visualization, everything that was available at the time. And, of course, now it's more sophisticated with sports psychologists and all that, and maybe that would have helped. But what I wanted to do was was go through everything. I didn't want to, but I I made myself a promise I would try everything so that if it wasn't there, I'd be convinced. So I wouldn't wake up some morning uh, on the back porch or sitting on the back porch at 85 years old and say, boy, I wish I'd have tried that. So I wanted to, to make sure that I tried everything, that something might just click and get me back to where I was. It never came. So finally, after having convinced myself it wasn't there, I just said uncle and uh, and walked away. And, and actually, at the time, it was kind of a relief to uh, not go through any more what I went through for those two miserable years. Mm. And and the book is not all about that. And I've read reviews about it. Said it's locker room talk. Steve Blast takes you inside the locker room using language that they use in the locker rooms. And this is the the full story: uh, a pirate's life by Steve Blast. You're a tremendous human being, Steve. Aside from being a great color commentator and a tremendous pitcher for the Pirates for all those years. And I know we'll have time to talk about this more in the future. But I thank you for being with us this morning. Well, I appreciate it, Mike. It's good to hook up with you again. I'll, I'll look forward to sitting down and, and uh, going over some more material. All right, great. Stay, thank you, Steve. And where can, where can people get the book? Uh, at Barnes & Noble and the big uh, the big box bookstores and Amazon.com has it. It's, it's out of Triumph Publishing, so it, it's available. We've had it out for about a month. The response has been very good around the Pittsburgh area, which I, I, I thought would be the primary uh, area of interest. You're very good. Steve Blast, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. The book is called A Pirate for Life from Steve Blass, former Pittsburgh Pirate pitcher, color commentator for the Pirates, A Pirate for Life. This podcast is the live Mike with Mike Romine on the Social Voice Project. If you like what you heard, make sure you like, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. What has God shown you that will happen in the future? He showed me that if Christians don't start praying more than they ever have, even the churches become the house of prayer, this next election 
presidential election, election is uh, not going to take place, that it's going to be suspended because evil's going to arise and uh, some disasters are going to happen and some things are going to be put in place and the president's not going to be removed. He's going to stay in and uh, these things are going to happen and they're going to be very bad if we don't get a hold of God.